Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is Brian Trent, who I originally met almost 10 years ago when he was a Rise of the Future winner published in volume 29 with his story, War Hero. His work appears in the New York Times bestseller Black Tide Rising series and Weird World War series, Analog Science Fiction and Fact, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, the year's best military and adventure SF, Escape Pod, Galaxy's Edge, and in 2019, he was winner of Bain Books Reader's Choice Award. A lot of water has passed under the bridge since we met back in 2013. He just published an amazing novel that I just read in preparation for this podcast, Red Space Rising. From what I can tell, it was based on his winning Rise of the Future story, which we'll be talking about. Welcome, Brian. Very nice to be here, John. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, I'm so glad that uh, you responded when I sent around that uh, email a couple months ago saying, I want to be on your podcast. And this is, and then reading the book, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to get right into this scene and start talking about uh, um, Red Space Rising because that was such an intense novel. So um, just how, a little bit of that, because you said you wanted to talk a little bit about the curve, how you've, how it built and how Rise of the Future had so much to do with it. But uh, anybody listen to stuff here, if you like thrillers, if you like ad- action adventure, if you like sci-fi, this book here, Red Space Rising, I highly recommend it. You can find it on Amazon. You know, I read it as an ebook, but just check it out if you like those types of stories. But anyway, so over to you, Brian, how, a little bit about your history of this. Well, uh, with Writers of the Future, my the story that won in the contest was called War Hero. And... I had been writing science fiction on and off throughout my life, uh, but that was really my big breakthrough. I published one other story before that in uh, Apex magazine professionally, and War Hero was the start of a sci-fi universe that I thought it would be fun to create. Uh, I write in a lot of different genres, but I thought it was interesting to have to create an entire universe where I could tell different stories, different characters, centuries apart sometimes, uh, that would each story would contribute to the whole. And when War Hero won, um, I thought it might be interesting. The main character of that story is Harris Alexander Pope, right. and he is essentially fighting in a civil war on Mars. Well, I use that as a jumping-off point to tell other stories that eventually grew into a novel. And um, as, as we were talking about a little earlier, that story is essentially in the novel, as you notice. It's one of the chapters where you know, I was able to now flesh out the backstory and get into the politics. And uh, it's, as it turns out, it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much else going on. But the story itself, um, you know, it's, it's a war story, yes. It's about you know, conspiracies and espionage and the resolve to survive. Harris is, this is a future where death is not permanent, right? People can upload their minds, download them into new bodies, download them into multiple bodies. So one of the 
results of this is that if you die, you're not necessarily aware of how you died. You just remember your last save. So Harris fighting this war and fighting in the aftermath, fighting the peace, if you will, which in some ways is, is even deadlier because you don't know where your enemies are anymore. He's seen the world change. He's a man out of time and he has to hit the ground running, try to get the lay of the land and understand how his, the parameters of his mission might not be so simple anymore in a universe that's changing wildly around him with every time he comes back from the dead. Yeah, it's just uh, amazing how that came together. And I was, as I was reading it, well, okay, there's a lot going on here. And then there's a whole new thing that opens up. It's like, oh my gosh, I was just, you know, I'm hyperventilating some of the scenes there. It's just, it's just so, <laughs> so much action that you've got happening on it. So you did it start off as a short story or did you start off as a novel and then turn one of the chapters into a short story? It started off as a short story. And then when I was creating, I usually write a lot of backstory to my, to my stories. I enjoy imaginations. I, I think that in imagined worlds, I enjoy doing imagination exercises. Uh, so I, I put a lot of thought into the world building, right? What are people eating? What are they thinking? What, what, politics and culture and technology and corporate factions exist, what religions exist. So I had been creating a little backstory for that. But yeah, the novel grew out of the short story. So it's essentially that that seed, as I said, is in, uh, you can find the seed in, in the novel itself. Yeah. Uh, in the book, it's like, it's in the first third of the book at this point, but um, as you saw, there's a lot more that happened before and and afterwards. That's just one of his grim adventures. That is, uh, as I said, just the just the pro essentially uh, the, the merest hint of what's actually going on. Yeah, well, that was a pretty intense scene there. So I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, that's one thing that I noticed too is the nomenclature. I was looking up a lot of words not just hard words but these are like uh history and you know different things that you brought from greece and from rome that you brought forward as you know with as mars was settled in, in the future modeling after those time periods so i'd have to look at you know what you were using here on the art forms and some of the locales and whatnot names that were used i'd have to fortunately on using kindle i could then take it and uh highlight it and it's in, it give me the definition so it's, it was fast to do that. i was just but i was amazed at your vocabulary that you had and then also the technical aspect of it you know because you're obviously this takes place some hundred years in the future and it's close enough to today's technology with terminology wise but far enough in the future that you know finding where that where that line transitions from science fact to science fiction was quite quite cleverly done. Well, thank you. I I wanted to the, the book takes place a thousand years in the future, but there was a dark age in between our era today, and there was a, a civilization collapse and eventually a renaissance, and then people su su people end up surpassing our technology. But I'm a fan of history. Uh, particularly the classical world, but history in general. And one of the takeaways, if you study history, is people don't change. The technology changes, the costumes change, the music changes, but people, the human element remains the same. Sure. 
And a lot of the, even though the politics are unfamiliar in this future and the technology is unfamiliar, it's really, it is a human struggle, right? The Mars is undergoing a civil war because having seceded from galactic society, they're following unintentionally in the footsteps of the French Revolution. The, the liberators are now the oppressors. And so these are just, there's, they're timeless themes. With regard to, so there's, there's two things to talk about there. One is they're using a new calendar. They don't use the AD calendar yeah, anymore. Right. Because, and part of it, it's, it's, very, it's very deliberate. They know that the old world destroyed itself. They don't necessarily know how. A lot of records have been lost, but they want to divorce themselves from that, um, from everything in the 20th and 21st centuries that they do know of. Right. So they reached back further to the Hellenistic world, to the classical world, and used those, use that as the wellspring for their new cultures, which is why they do refer a lot. And a lot of that stuff, too, is... It, it's not easily easily wiped out in electronic records. They they find it in museums and through stories and through hard copy books. So they they do did use that in a, in a similar way that the the Renaissance looked back. Right, the Renaissance looked back before the Middle Ages to the classical world. Uh, so that was part of the inspiration. And then you know technologically, one of my I'm a big science fiction fan, lifelong sci fi geek. Grew up on all the classic sci-fi movies, Forbidden Planet and Them, and The Day of the Earth Stood Still, and the original Star Trek. But one thing that annoyed me is that the depiction of military technology is wanting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've I've joked, but not necessarily not necessarily joking that this, the security forces of the Enterprise could be defeated by a low rent mall cop. I wanted to show technology used in a in a cunning tactical way so when harris has his battles he's a one-man wrecking crew but so are his enemies so it's he's using tactics ai assists and his the his shield that he can conjure and his multi-gun which fires in numerous uh numerous ranges of different kinds of ammunition and lasers and emps and caltrips and he's got um his senses are dialed up faster his uh, his reflexes are faster. He has blur, blur mod augmentation to make him move faster than other people. But again, his opponents have that. So I, I wanted to write those scenes with a certain kind of kinetic energy. So hopefully it would make the reader pass, pass, <laughs> double pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Make it, make it, make it, make it sweat with the scenes and realize what's at stake. And especially since people can die so quickly now, it's not permanent, but still it's a loss and you might wake up 10 years in the future, depending on what happens. So, uh, that was a big, uh, it was one of my focuses in writing this book is he's, he's a one man army. Yes. Um, but he's in an extraordinarily dangerous world that, as time progresses, he increasingly doesn't understand, is a man out of time, and is really falling back on a skill set that might not get him through the challenges that are increasing or mounting in his world. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And it was also, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? It got really, you know, it gets so convoluted there with all the subterfuge, you know, being able to know 
my I had a, a stable reference point, which was him. So I'm he's the protagonist, and I know you, and what you read, what I read of yours. So I know he's not going to flip. And all of a sudden, now this guy here turns out to be the devil incarnate. So I knew I knew that that was going to he was going to be with us. And then, um, and but how was how he was seeing stuff? Everything's from his viewpoint. You yes. Know? So you did right. this first person is like, wow, you know, that's a lot of action you're doing there, you know, um, writing like that. And but still to be able to give all of this, you know, you had some really great tools that you used to be able to keep the reader up to date. But you're basically moving in real time as was from what he sees now, he perceives stuff and he's trying to to deal with everything. So it was, it was really impressive how you, you know, how you held it together with that with so much going on. There was so much going on. I'm delighted you enjoyed it so much. Uh, I, yeah, the book opens, right, with, with uh, and in a way it's a nod to Philip K. Dick. It opens with him waking, him waking up surrounded by dead bodies and finding out very quickly he was one of those dead bodies just a few minutes ago. That he's been brought back, resurrected, and, re and his original personality reinserted. So essentially, he's told, by the way, you've been undercover for 20 years with the enemy, and you actually work for us. There's the Order of Stone, which are the quote-unquote good guys, and there's the partisans, who really are the bad guys. I mean, there's some, there's some pretty nefarious, sinister characters in their ranks. But to get to your point, I am not a fan of stark good guys and stark bad guys. Yes, the partisans, are, they're, they're villainous. Yeah. But I always been, I've always been attracted to the grayscale of morality with characters. So the Order of Stone, they are good by comparison to the partisans. But as you know, they do some shady things. Their plans are in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Clearly, Harris isn't being told things. And I want, as a writer, I wanted to try to make it obvious to the reader that that he's not being told certain things. It's some 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 of his relationships they're odd. There's not. There's clearly things that are being kept secret from him, but he doesn't necessarily notice it. Or if it's coming from someone he trusts because of his memories of this person, his what he knows of his dynamic, his former dynamic with them, he trusts that individual. But the readers left thinking, I don't. This person seems a little shady. This person seems like maybe they don't have his best interests at heart. Yeah, I get that, but I also, I. You kept me pretty much in his in his point of view, you know. So I, yeah. I could see that it's not all as it appears to be, but I was, I was so much into the willing, you know, suspension of disbelief. I was just going along with it to see where's this thing going to take me. I know it's going to come out good in the end, but boy, I sure don't see where it's going to be able to achieve that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was just, it was, it was great. It was just such mile a minute action that was. Um, very enjoyable uh, to read, and then of course I was I was jamming to get through it in time to be able to write through this podcast. But then I was done. I said, "Oh no, it's done now." <laughs> so um, anyway, on um, so getting back now onto this. So you know, anybody listening to this thing here, it it really is quite the uh, quite the exciting uh, read. If that's the kind of stuff that you like, which I I do like that kind of of uh, science fiction. So um, one thing about uh, Pope is that he's very similar to a, a story type or character type 
that Owen Hubbard used in his stories, and it's um, the man that learns better. And they're they're not necessarily like you're saying they're they're not they're like in that gray zone. They're not good guys. They're not bad guys. But you know they may have been involved with things that you know from from what they were doing um, they figured it was it was right. But they didn't necessarily always go, agree with the law. They didn't always do things the right way. They come to some moral crossroads and they decide they're going to do it the right way. They're they're going to make some type of a you know whether it's an epiphany or whether it's just some like okay I can't go on living like this I need to to do it and at the end which I obviously can't say because that's gonna be a total spoiler alert but at the end that happens to him <laughs> yes <laughs> you know right right I at, at the end ultimately let's say ultimately he can only rely on his own sense of right and wrong that's right his own his own regardless of what he thinks his loyalties are and how confusing the universe around him can be or certain expectations are thwarted um certain people he thought were allies or not um and vice versa uh-huh. it's really really comes down to the one thing that he can trust his own thoughts and his own sense of morality and his own sense of justice because he has and he and he makes those decisions based on some of the horrors that he has seen and yeah, it's a dark. It is a dark sci-fi novel, and I, when I even when I wrote my Writers of the Future um, story, that's it's a pretty grim story. Uh, I just sort the of... first story in the book too, which is always, from the <laughs> editor's perspective, his favorite or her f- favorite story. I was uh, very delighted. Actually, Mike Resnick um, and David Farland both told me that, and I was extremely humbled, extremely honored by that, and extremely surprised because it. It is grisly. In fact, when I submitted it to the, I've been sitting to the contest for you know a few years, and I I can't say I necessarily thought that would be the one that breaks through because it is, it's uh, it's almost a horror story in some in some respects, right? So, yeah, but it's such a hu- it's it's such a human story though too. Um, right, you really see what this guy's going through, and it just it intensifies the human experience. Um, hundred X, you know, so you get this stuff and, you know, um, you can relate to him in, in very definite respects when, you know, what he's going through and just imagining though, that whole, just for me to imagine like, okay, I wake up again now and you're starting all over again. And, but then to come to learn that you can also have different memories erased. And, um, it's just, it's, that's a scary proposition. And for me, that it was scary because I see a lot of things happening with what was the politics of your storytelling. Um, yep. is very much things that I could easily see happening right now because you've got like the what everybody else sees, you know, in terms of politics. But then you have the backstory, and it gets mushed away and hidden away with, oh, that's just um, um, you're just getting involved with scare tech, scare tactics, and you're just, you know. Um, delusional but you see this stuff because it's so outrageous it's easy to like pass it off as being like that yet you know the there's a lot of stuff that's been going on for a long time that there's no reason to assume that it's not going to continue going on as as things grow and escalate and the those people have the resources which is what your story is about to do certain things we're definitely doing things exactly and i mean there's no reason that it won't go on. I mean, we have 
thousands of years of history of tyrannies and despotisms, everything from you know late Roman Republic to the armies of Genghis Khan to you know various book burnings through history, destruction of the Great Library of Alexandria and the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, and all these. It's been in some ways. So much of history has been dominated by extraordinarily bad people using the means at their disposal to impose their will on others, to control others. And certainly now in my future, this has gone way past anything, even of the, the large scale genocides of the 20th century. Now we're talking about the ability to manipulate people's memories, manipulate their quote unquote souls, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but ultimately, like throughout history, it comes down to a soldier, to one person trying to do the right thing. Whether that soldier is someone who's fighting in the army of Alexander the Great or Charlemagne or the revolution, the American Revolution, whatever it is, it's, it's a, it's, it is ultimately a human story beneath the technological trappings, beneath some of the historical references. It's about people, mm-hmm. friendships, betrayals, and in a lot of ways, uh, defiance. Yeah, definitely defiance. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now you mentioned earlier on that that Rise of the Future had a lot to do with how things have evolved for you as a as a writer. Can you expand on that, please? Yeah, Writers of the Future, that workshop week, first of all, winning, of course, was, was wonderful. Um, I never forget the phone call, <laughs> which was terrific, uh, letting me know. And the workshop week was significant because for, on, on the one hand, I, it gave me confidence, the confidence to realize, oh, I can actually do this because I've been writing a long time. I've been writing since I was a little kid. And to have to win such a major and prestigious contest and you know, be, be recognized like that during a week and it made me think, okay, I can write, I'm going to write more stories in this universe. I can flesh this out more. But then some of the things we were, we were told, some of the tactics, some of the, uh, the people, like I said, Tim Powers, David Farland, Mike Resnick, who gave us advice, I started writing what became my newest batch of fiction at the time, my newest as in, you know, the, the new level of writing that I was aiming for on the plane over to, over to L.A., just buoyed up by the excitement of what I was doing and thinking, all right, this story worked. I can write with this level of detail, with this level of historical uh, reference. And, and that story that I wrote on a plane or started writing a plane, I ended up re- that was my first analog sale, Karma Among the Cloud Kings. Wow, that's uh, I, great. While I, yeah, while I was at the, during the workshop week, one of the exercises we were given was to, we took a random object out of a bag, right? Out of a hat. And then had to write a story about that. We spent time in the library doing research and so forth. Well, I sold that story to Escape Pod. Uh, while I was, when I came back from the contest, within a couple of weeks, I had written what's maybe my most popular short story called Sparg, about a little pet octopus, uplifted octopus, um, and sold that one to Daily Science Fiction. And that one's gone on to be published you know, more than a dozen times in, re- in reprints. Well, that's so, cool. so much stems from that week. And, not, and that's not even getting into the, the friendships that I made. I'm still friends with nearly everyone who was there. 
in volume 29. Andrea Stewart and I are really good friends. Eric Klein and I are good friends. Uh, Tina Gower and I are good friends. Um, yeah, I noticed them in, in your acknowledgement at the end of the, at the end of your book, yeah. you acknowledged them. I was going to ask you about that. That's way cool. Yeah, no, we, we just all hit it off and we're all just, because that's, science fiction is our tribe. We were all, we all came to it with, for, with a love of the genre, a love of imagined nations with, and, and very likely, um, a love of our earlier exposure to it with the recent pulp magazines, uh, in, in, in Twilight Zone episodes with the works of Isaac Asimov and Ursula K. Le Guin and Ray Bradbury, wherever we came from, it's all, it's, it's, it's a territory that, at least when I started out, it wasn't nearly as popular as it was now. So I think it attracts like-minded spirits. Sure. And uh, we just, we all, uh, we just, we stayed friends. And I'm so happy for that because um, they're, I, I love celebrating their successes. And, you know, we read for each other. We do, we do, a lot of my first readers are those individuals. Yeah, that's great. I just, I recently interviewed Elizabeth Wayne who was the winner in volume nine. And she had a, a book that was multiple weeks on New York times, number one on New York times. And I just, I just had her and she still maintained lines, you know, with several of her people. Sean Williams was one of her fellow winners. He's now became a judge. And it was, um, it was interesting just seeing, you know, over and over again, how many rise of future winners have maintained friendships with their class classmates. And a lot of the uh, the writers have also built established relationships with illustrators of future winners who now do the art for their book covers. So it's 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 really nice seeing that how it's how it grows and and just those relationships build. It's um that in itself is is very rewarding as well. I love being you know being able to do like these interviews with yourself, just um how people have grown and and how you now have your influence on people that are trying to get their break you know, which is what this interview is going to help, you know, aspiring authors do. Which, and which I'm happy to do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great group to belong to. It's a great tribe to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and actually you just reminded me my first analog sale that I mentioned that I started writing on the plane, mm -hmm. uh, that story in analog, that story was illustrated by one of the illustrators from the year from that volume 29. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So when you did the workshop, do you remember any of the, the particular essays? Because one of the things I like to discuss also on these podcasts, if there's any particular essays that stand out or any parts of that workshop week that went like, yeah, this was this was for me the highlight or something that was the best part for you. There were two essays that immediately come to mind. Uh, one of them was called The Manuscript Factory, um, Good, portions yeah. of it, which uh, I know a lot of people cite it but it is uh a realistic practical and extraordinarily tactical way of looking at the industry which i think is necessary mm -hmm. the other one i don't remember the name of it but it was essentially about drawing a comparison between a writer who uh, l ron hubbard knew who just sort of was waiting for inspiration to strike and was sort of lamenting that he was not able to write a story couldn't think of anything and um, Hubbard was talking about how he went down to the library and just did some research, and that alone got the juices flowing. You don't wait. In other words, you don't wait for inspiration to strike. You go out there to capture lightning yourself, right? Yeah. And I think it was called Search I, for Research. 
Ah, okay. That would make yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that aligns with my perspective anyway. I don't like to wait for the muses of Delphi to, to eventually, <laughs> to eventually bestow some, something I, I always, this is a habit I've had since I was a kid. I constantly have one foot in imagination. If I'm driving in the rain, well, part of me is thinking I'm in a hovercraft on an alien world um, with the lights of the other cars being some golden-eyed natural fauna um, that I'm studying. You just you have to keep <laughs> the imagination going, or it will atrophy. Yeah. So, uh, and not all of those ideas come to fruition. Not all of these turn into stories. Sometimes it just helps you pass a long drive. But I do think that if you at least have, have one foot in imagination often, and you're exposing yourself to new things, traveling to new countries, new places, reading new books, having new experiences, meeting new people, learning new things. I mean, we live in the information age, right? Um, so this, we have access to information at the speed of light. Never before in the history of the world have we had such information at our disposal. That's a lot of potential seeds for a lot of potential stories. So you don't wait around to be inspired. You seek it out. Absolutely. Now, how did you find out about Writers of the Future? When I wanted to get serious about writing, I just started researching the venues that were open to me. And of course, I had been sending stories to Analog and Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction when I had a dot ma well, actually, excuse me, I was going to say a dot matrix printer, when I had a Brother 11 typewriter <laughs> where if you type too fast all the little arms get stuck together and you had to prime apart Been yeah, there, done uh, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um uh and writers of the future was just one of the markets one of the venues that uh i uncovered and started sending and eventually first it was just sort of standardized rejections and then i started getting the honorable not formal honorable mention but like i guess it was shortlisted a couple times and then I wrote a grisly, gruesome pseudo horror story <laughs> and ended up winning. So, but it it was a number of uh, it was a number of years. Yeah, and then um, now, as a kid, were you the kind that wanted a typewriter instead of a bike for his birthday, or oh, how this? Well, I, I had both. <laughs> I I definitely subscribed to the more uh, the Hemingway model of writer, like get out into the wilderness, hike. Have a Kevin G. Anderson still does that, right? He yeah. writes a lot of his stories yeah. just with his. He walks around. He and I actually, he and I run into each other at conventions a lot, and uh, he's a great guy. Yeah, and he, he, I haven't gotten to his point yet where he. I don't walk around with uh, um, a tape recorder essentially, um, or you know, a phone recording, and just speak the stories into that. I, had, I don't have that level of uh, composition. I do. I prefer to do it on the computer so I can see the words. But um, yeah, I, I had the bike, but I had the. Uh, I also would ask for the typewriter and the waste paper basket and the, the pr printer paper and the middle envelopes and everything else. <laughs> the, 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 the tools of the trade. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, I'm just curious that when you were talking about, you know, you were saying you've been writing since way young, if that was, cause Kevin, when he tells the story too, when he was, um, we went for Christmas. He wanted a typewriter. He didn't want anything else. That's what he wanted for, you know, um, as a, as a kid. He just he's always wanted to just be an author. He just that's been his thing, and he's just he's constantly worked towards doing that. And obviously, he's got a very himself a very successful career now as an author. Right. Um, 
So on the, so you enter the contest. So now after the workshop week and the awards ceremony, who presented your award? Do you remember? Uh, Eric Flint. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah. this is one he, he loved. I mean, he just passed away uh, earlier. I know. What a, what a loss. Yeah, what a loss. absolutely. Yeah. He's a really nice guy. Yeah, and he totally loved the contest and being able to help aspiring writers too, which is one of the hallmarks of our judges. Yeah, but anything in particular that week that stands up for you, at the, rather at the, at the uh, awards event, at the gala? Uh, I, the whole week stands out because it was just so enchanting. <laughs> Uh, but I would say the war gala in particular was was nice because I had uh, my acceptance piece got a lot of attention. Um, and what's funny is a lot of people said to me, "Well, how long did it take to memorize that?" I hadn't I didn't really memorize it. I was throughout that week. I'm thinking, "What do I want to say? What do I want to say? I want to thank my friends. Well, which friends? Why don't I thank them all?" I'm never going to remember that. I want to thank my family. I want to reference how I got into this industry, what attracted me first to this. Uh, and I just sort of put it all together that morning um, of the contest, which I got to say, I will say this too. I had been up until 3.30 in the morning talking to Mike Resnick. And everybody gets con crud. And I hadn't been sleeping very much that week because I wanted, I was so excited and having such a good time. I was fighting a fever that morning, <laughs> the morning uh -huh. of, the, of the reception. So uh, it's uh, kind of a miracle that I was able to give the speech, remember what I remembered, and uh, and not pass out on the stage. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he that's his schedule. He would wake up usually. Yeah. That was his normal schedule. He he particularly liked to write at night because no, he wouldn't get disturbed. You know, he could just work at night and uh, write his write his stories without people calling him and distracting him and coming over to visit and, and chat and stuff like that. So, um, did you, well, okay. So you finished, you went home after the, uh, rise of future week, then what happened then on your writing? How's it gone? And, and what's your trajectory at being a full-time writer? How much that, that covers paying the, you know, for your expenses, living expenses as compared to having a, a day job? How's that whole thing work for you? Well, when I got home from the contest, I cleaned my writing room and decided to get seriously organized. And I started, um, I decided to really crank up the time that I spent writing, right? So I, Mike Resnick liked to write at night. I prefer to write very early in the morning while my mind is focusing only on a story where social obligations and whatever else doesn't get in the way of things. Right. Um, it's the same philosophy that, that Resnick touted, just a, you know, different polarity of the day. And then I just started sending out, I started building a body of stories and sending them out and always had at least a few stories out. And if a story got rejected, if there was some meaningful feedback, I would consider it and perhaps edit it and then send it out again somewhere else. So it was always juggling, always sending things out. And then eventually when I started getting stories sold to various venues and nature and escape pod and magazine of fantasy and science fiction, et cetera, I came to understand what those places liked and would then tailor some of my stories or some of the stories I was already writing, being more concentrated, more surgical, surgically precise in the uh, uh, places that I would send them to. And you know, I've published extremely regularly now. So, and now, you know, getting more into novels. I mean, Red Space Rising 
I, I didn't even mention Risky Rising is actually a sequel, but it's a standalone sequel. So as, as you know yourself, you can read it completely on its own. Yeah. Uh, and 10,000 Thunders is the previous book that sets the universe up. But I do feel that that's how sequels should be. You should be able to come to them from wherever you are and enjoy them on their own merits. And if you read the other ones, great. You know more about it, more backstory. But if you don't, no problem. Um, I, you know, I've been invited the Black Tide Rising series uh, by John Ringo. I, they invited me to contribute stories. Um, the Weird World War series, uh, just various anthologies, uh, and I actually love the challenge. I love you know being able to play in a different sandbox and being able to being forced into certain parameters can actually be very can can bring out some of your best creative energies. You know, Absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. You get you outside of yourself and outside of your comfort zone. So um, I actually I love it. I love the industry. I love writing, and so you're uh, a full time writer. That's your. I'm, full, I'm a full time writer. That's awesome. So at what point were you able to transition from having to have a some of the supplementary income to where you just now I'm a writer? Uh, it was a few years ago. A few years ago, it just the 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 love. <laughs> I don't actually keep track of, I don't know how many stories I've written, stories, nonfiction works, um, et cetera. So it is, I just have it, I, I write so much and have it out there so much that, you know, it's a, it's a, it allows me to pay my bills, but we're on the table. Which is awesome. So now in terms of, I said, this is the writers and illustrators of the future podcast. So we're always looking for inspiration and tips for the aspiring writer as well as just great storytelling on, on, um, on writers, how their careers developed. Did you ever run through a period where you're ready to throw in the towel and say, okay, look at, I've just had one too many rejects and it's like, I guess it's just not for me. Or are you the right before I won the contest? That's the truth. Yeah. So explain that a little bit because that's, this is, this is really important because one thing that I hate that the biggest horror story for me is where someone says, well, you know, I quit because I just, I, I just, I couldn't handle the rejects and people need to, even though you're not, your thick skin isn't theirs. If they get your story, it'll help to thicken their skin up a bit. Well, I mean, yeah. And I know there's a lot of writers who did give up. I was, I was in a hair's breadth of, of giving up on it. I really was because while I love to write and always was going to write, it's a brutal industry. It really is brutal, even to I mean, even to this day, and in some ways it's worse uh, because the competition is has, is increased by orders of magnitude, but the venues have shrunk. The there's just um, so it's 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 tough, and winning the contest, as I said, is why it meant so much to me. Was it gave me that that jolt of of confidence, and I thought you know, I thought I was writing some pretty good things. Um, and I was aware that there were a lot of things I was writing that were not, <laughs> that were not so pretty, mm-hmm. but it, uh, it's perseverance, but it's also, it takes perseverance. It takes dedication. Don't wait for the muse. You, you, you have to, that's, I guess that's my biggest piece of advice that I would tell any aspiring writer is you, you have to make it a discipline. If, if you want to be serious about it, if you're, if you're serious about it from a business perspective, you have to make it a discipline. You don't have to write every day. You don't have to write 11 hours a day, but it's about a pattern. If you get up in the morning and you only write for three hours, great. 
write those three hours. Um, at least, and then it starts to come easier for you. The worst thing, my, the worst thing for me is facing the glacial whiteness of a blank document. Um, that's the most intimidating part, starting a story. But, um, so I would say what helped me is, is treating it like a discipline. And in, in, in having said that, always trying to improve, studying the market, studying the stories that produce certain feelings in you. You know, it was Ray Bradbury and it was Isaac Asimov and it was Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, it, was, it was the Twilight Zone TV show. These are things that had such a pivotal, essential influence on me. It made me feel a certain way, got my mind working a certain way. So I wanted to emulate that. Um, a lot of my stories have little surprise, little stingers at the end. Uh, I mean, that, that's because I was always, I still remember how I felt when the Twilight Zone episode would completely twist things around. I realized, well, it, it, what I thought was happening was not happening. And that goes right. back to what you're saying about Red Space Rising. The whole thing is a Twilight Zone-like inversion of perspective. Um, so, yeah, dedication. And also, I'll say this, get rid of distraction. The, you know, I think personally, I think that the smartphone is the worst development since the evolution of smallpox. Um, and, but it is, it is one of those things that is a constant, the proverbial person from Porlock, the thing that shows up and distracts you. I, I do know a lot of writers, um, aspiring and otherwise, who are always lamenting that they don't have time to write while they make their 50th tweet um, or, or, you know, 20th Facebook post put the phone away. You don't need to do research when you're writing. You do research when you're not writing. Um, you do not need to hop on the social media virus and have more proof that the world's gone mad. I mean, just like focus on your story. Don't. <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien's One Ring is probably the greatest metaphor for a modern age because you see, watch people on a subway or you watch people, you know, I travel, I'm like, everybody's on their phone all the time. It's like, it's that episode of Star Trek where Wesley brings home the toy that everybody's obsessed with, or it's the one ring people can't seem to put down for five minutes. There's no worse thing for the only thing worse for a, a person trying to be productive in writing is to set your computer on fire. Just put the phone away, turn the phone off, make sure you have a quiet time, whether it's at night or on weekends or in the morning or whenever you can write, and then sit down and write. If you want to, if you're, if you're serious about it, it's more than a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're talking earlier about Kevin Anderson. He, he just, he go he goes, he goes up on the mountains and he's just, he has no range of no cell phone. He just, he dictates his stories. He's, he's got a, his uh, book that he wrote with um, Martin Shoemaker, you know, being a dictator where they just, how you dictate a story. But, you know, he just, he solves his pride problem by just, going away so he, he can't be distracted by these things mm -hmm. but yeah. you're right you got to be able to just it's my time to write and nothing else matters because if you want food on the table if you want a roof over your head i need to write it's a job it has to it yeah. has to be a job um so you know you and, and that's and the manuscript factor you're talking about that's that's exactly what he's talking about there. that that's the it, ultimately it is the manuscript factor it's just that that's it's it's a keen observation on, on, on writing as a business and um, anything that distracts you. I mean, obviously there are things life will get in the way. You know, we have our families and we have our pets and we have things that we have to do and you have, and you need time away from writing. You have to 
even Emily Dickinson's inspiration didn't come when she was cloistered in a room. It came when she was outside watching a train lap the miles or a snake crawling through the grass or hearing a fly buzz, whatever it is, it was interaction with the world that inspires us. But when it's time to write, you, 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 anything that distracts you from that is like a little leech just siphons off some of your energy, some of your blood. So yeah. you have to focus on and don't research when you're writing, research when you're not writing. Um, yeah. Have you read any of Hubbard's stories? I read Fear and a few short stories here and there. Um, uh, I think in some of the original pulp magazines, actually, my my father uh, um, had a crate of uh, old pulp magazines from Doc Savage and you know twenties and thirties and forties that I used to that I grew up reading. Yeah, yeah. interesting about Fear is that Owen Hubbard always carried a typewriter with him whenever he traveled, and so that when there he wrote, he he'd finish a meeting um, with with John Campbell and. Um, oh said okay he's going to the original story was called phantasm phantasmagoria something like that and mm -hmm. he said okay i can I'll, I'll get you the story by the time i get to the west coast he was he was taking a train over there and um uh highline was there and he recounted that story in a another letter that he wrote but he just um he sent half the story from chicago and then the and then the final part of the story when he made it to uh the, to the west coast and um it was interesting we talked about what it was it was one of his hardest stories to write getting into that mindset to write that because that pretty much that story there was various authors say that's one one of the things that inspired them into being able to write in the genres that they write in but it's um he had a, he had his whole thing of of did a lot of research because he was so active outside you know doing so many different things but he would write three hours a day three days a week and he was writing about hundred thousand words a month during the the pulp days in the 30s and 40s he was very prolific but he just when it's time to write he wrote a e. van Vogt even gave us told a story about how watching him write his stories he put the paper in he looked towards the wall not at the wall and he just started typing and the story was rolling out in his mind and he just typed the story and he was just very prolific but then when you talk read some of the hubbard's essays he talks about how you think i'm prolific and he starts rattling off other authors that are way more prolific than he was you know, he says, just, you know, you, if you're going to be a writer, you've got to write. A writer writes. A writer, a writer writes. Exactly. It's, that's exactly right. Um, it's, it's a job. It's, it's, it's yeah. It's funny you were, you're saying about getting into the mindset, like, you know, when he was writing Fear, getting into that mindset. When I finished Red Space Rising, I uh, went into a funk for a couple of weeks because it is, it goes into some unusual and certain kind of unnerving corners of the human psyche and and and, and it does, it's not a it, it's not necessarily the most optimistic appraisal of people on some respects uh, the human race it's not um, optimistic it's realistic it's not optimistic it's thank at least you. i would, I would say realistic yeah yeah I, that, I, that to I me was the scariest part of it i i don't <laughs> like to truck in, in nihilism but yeah i did it was try, i was trying to be if this technology is available um, if this world, you know, is like that, people are going to abuse that technology if they have a means to power. I mean, imagine if a Roman emperor had some of the power that we have today, you know, a Commodus or a Caracalla um, uh, or a Nero, right? So that, those people, those types are always going to be there. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's... Um, but we always gonna need the popes as well. And they're always there as well. And that's, that, that's where the, op that's where a ray of optimism comes in, that he does his presence in the book he 
it seems like a lot of times he doesn't have agency because he's being shuttled from one assignment to another, tracking down these escaped war criminals, which, by the way, I was inspired by uh, in the uh, aftermath of World War II, a lot of Nazi war criminals fled to South America and a lot of British agents um, hunted them down. Uh, and that's that really was the genesis of the whole story uh, of here. Harris Alexander Pope is being just being sent off to track down these escaped war trim, criminals. But uh, his defiance, his resolve, regardless of whatever else is going on in his world, uh, in, his, in his universe, uh, is the ray of hope. That's that's what we cling to. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, it's it's important, you know, because you can't have. I mean, it's not a goody-goody world out there. And yeah. so, um, although I, I'm really not into the pessimism, I'm not into dystopia as, mm-hmm. as a genre. I don't, I don't, I, perce- I myself always look to see that somehow, some way, there's going to be the Alexander Pope out there. And if it's a good enough story, I, I fancy myself as that Alexander Pope, you know, <laughs> I like to think that. Um, sure. that's going to be there. That's going to be able to help save the day, you know, and you want to be able to have that out there. And there's, you know, for someone that, 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 that basically lays constantly the seed of, of discontent and of hopelessness. Um, I'm not into that. It's not something mm-hmm. that rise the futures about it's definitely not right. something that Mr. Hubbard was about with his science fiction. And it definitely wasn't the golden age, you know, that right. it was definitely not that. So, you know, yours is, while it's not like, um, you know, here's everything's all cheery and happy, and now the it's over with, and he, he rides off into the sunset, or he flies off into the sunset with um, his girlfriend, and they live happily in after. It's not that at all. In fact, it's year ending. I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a perfect ending. You know, it totally was consistent with your whole story and I really enjoyed it. And thank you. Anybody thank you, yeah. thinking like I, I do like stories that, that end good. And so this is, um, a good ending, a bit of a surprise ending. And it's, I'm now waiting for your next book, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a, a lot of the, in, in a way too, I mean, I, as a, I was an English major and uh, I read a lot of the, uh, the classical epics and, these people, the, the, the proverbial descent into the underworld that a lot of heroes go through, right? I mean, nowadays yeah. we say it's you, 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 I've been through hell and back, right? Yeah. Uh, and yes, he does that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he definitely goes through several levels of hell. Um, but it, as, you, as you pointed out, and I think that is, is a fair assessment. It's not nihilistic. It's not, if there's dark, there's darkness, but there's light. There's darkness, yeah. but there's hope. And there's yeah. darkness and there's defiance. And that is really, I think, the thesis of, uh, of the book. Yeah, he, he keeps his act together in the end, you know, and he's got, it's good. You know, he's, he has his, his sense of duty and his motivation is definitely duty. You know, you see that. And, um, um, I mean, it's just good. So what's your, um, what's coming up next now from you? I realize this just came out and like, come on, give me, a, let me catch my breath here, but I'm just curious. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, well uh, I, you know, it's, um, I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. And uh, it's the critics have been very kind to it. Actually, uh, Publishers Weekly made a comment about how it was reminded them of the golden age of science fiction, which 
Um, was, uh, and, there's, and I'm sure you picked it up right away. Yeah. There's a lot of homages to that, a lot of yeah. references to uh, classical sci-fi. I mean, all the sand ships on Mars are named up to Bradbury and uh, stories. Uh, but uh, I, um, right now I'm finishing up a alternate history because there's another, in addition to my war hero stories, um, I also write a uh, specific set of alternate history stories, um, which is uh, a way to counterbalance it, but it's still written in my kind of style. Like it's still very detailed and I pay a lot of attention to world building. And I had a story published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. We have some, some works uh, set in that universe there. So I'm doing that as a novel. And then I'm going to be um, putting my full attention to the next Red Space Rising book. Can't keep writing, you know. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, I just finished. Um, you talking about alternate history? I just finished uh, an interview with Alan Smale, another uh, Rise of the Future winner. He's won two Sidewise Awards, and he just did a a novel called Hot Moon, which is um, it, it's also interesting on these alternate histories because you've got to get it really good if it's going to be believable. That transition that as you move over from here's the fact and then taking that hole in time where there's nobody has anything recorded or there's something that's you know missing there and then you can move back into the fact and then seamlessly put in your alternate history in there yeah. it's it's a, it's a real it's a real trick and so um more power to you on that to be able to to write the the alternate history it's it's been fun. I mean, actually, because I love history so much, uh, the research alone has been been a joy to do for this one. It's been taken a lot. Um, I mean, I did a fair amount of research for Red Space Rising, um, but a lot of that yeah, was an imagined. Yeah, explain things. that a little bit. Just yeah, explain that a little bit more because that's something I noticed is that you had to have done a ton of research to put that together. So before you start writing, what do you do? Do you obviously you're you're not a pantser. You you definitely didn't write that book on the sea of your pants. There was so much in that book. So how do you put a, a, a story together, a storyline together that you write? Well, I'll tell you what, John. Actually, generally, I am a pantser. That's the funny thing. But it was a little bit of a cheat with this one because I um, I had created this world with other stories set in that universe. So I had a little bit of a compass. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But ordinarily, no, it can't just, like, I wouldn't be able to wing that. Um, but I understood, um, in writing 10,000, when I wrote War Hero, I started creating the backstory of the partisan war. And then I started asking myself, well, hang on a second here. Um, what, how did we get to a civil war on Mars? How did this even happen? And that, and the stories I wrote, the concept I came, I, I asked myself, what happened in the past? What what happened in our future, but their past? to make this happen and what companies what governments came out of the ashes of this dark age that that um that ends the 21st century in our timeline right uh what and i started building off of that and Ten Thousand thunders was the first novel sir science fiction novel i wrote from that uh and then sometimes in a lot of my stories I'll have a reference to someone. I might even might not even know what it is at the time, but I'll think about it afterwards. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, this is going to get a little meta, but there's a character in the novel named Amara Javed. She's a major um, character mm -hmm. uh, and a friend of Harris Alexander Pope's. And there's a comment in the book. This isn't giving anything away, but she mentions how she spent some time on Venus and the Aristotle colonies in right. Venus. Right. And then... To, uh, 
then she had to leave. And she makes a comment about just a little throwaway line. Well, I've written a story. It was published on a skate pod. Um, and actually, it was also published in Analog, originally in Analog, that is about her time on Venus. She's not the main character. In, in some ways, she's more the antagonist of that story. But her, what happened to her on Venus is told in that story. It also, in Red Space Rising, Harris Alexander Pope makes a comment about a mission on Luna to hunt down right. a general Sabrina Potts. Right. right. Yeah, that story is told in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. It's a story I wrote called A Thousand Deaths to Flesh and Stone. And it's about what happened to him on Luna. So these little nuggets, these little lines, sometimes I write the short story first and then, and then layer it into the uh, novel. Sometimes I will, will have a comment or a little throwaway line or character or an event somewhere and we'll build a story, out, a novel out of that. So I'm very familiar with that universe now. And there's still references. There's, uh, it can get pretty grand. But again, here's the thing. You don't ha nobody has to care about that stuff, right? Now, mm -hmm. you enjoyed the novel on your own, didn't know that, that if you wanted to go down those rabbit holes, they're there. Um, and so that leads so, me to that basic question. So how does a person find this? So we're getting close. We're about, we're on our last minute here. So, sure. um, so how's a person find these other stories? They just, everything's on briantrent.com or do they have to go to? BrianTrent.com would do it. Um, I, I list all of my, under my published works uh, page on my, on my website. Um, all my stories are listed there. Some are behind a paywall, but some are not. Like, for example, the, the one on Venus, it's a skate pod. You can listen to it uh, for free. They're all listed. They're all linked there. And um, I have a little, little carrot um, on the stories that uh, are associated with Space Rising, if people want to play that game. I try to write books um, on multiple levels. You can enjoy it just as a straightforward action novel. You can enjoy it from more of a historical perspective. And if you really want to get into the meta elements of it, I mean, there's, and, and if you'd like my writing, then yeah, I've written more in that universe and those characters have had lateral parallax adventures. I get it. So now, uh, normally I ask an author, what do you recommend to get started? And since this is all about Red Space Rising, that's what I'm telling you, you need to read. And then you can go on after that to check out whatever else <laughs> by going to <laughs> briantrent.com or um, you can find out more about it on Goodreads because that's where I posted a review as well or on Amazon. Anyway, this has been great talking with you. Any last words you'd like to say before we uh, wrap this one up? No, just this is a delight talking to you, John. Um, and uh, again, I appreciate all the inspiration that Raiders of the Future did for me. And uh, you know, being friends with you over the years has just always been wonderful. And this, yeah, I mean, we this is a great industry. It's a great industry. It's it's a great genre, and I'm just happy to be part of it. Great. Well, I'm very glad that we were able to connect back up here on the, doing this podcast because it's uh, nice finding out what you've done and reading an, an amazing story. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books were sold in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future contest created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the